Hello, and welcome to Disneyversity, the podcast crash course through the history of Disney's animated classics, where we talk about some of the most famous movies ever made that most of us probably don't know nearly as well as we think. Each episode, we'll be moving forward in time through the legendary Disney catalogue, watching every feature film in the Walt Disney Animation Studios vault, from Snow White to Raya and the Last Dragon, seeing how they stand up today, how they pushed the boundaries of animation, shaped the legacy of Walt Disney and the wider Disney brand, and how they influenced pop culture at large. Disclaimer, this is not an official Disney podcast, but all of these films are available to stream now on Disney Plus, so come on, watch along with us, and let's learn together. I'm film journalist Ben Travis, and while I have occasionally been called the fairest of them all, I'm not your Disneyversity lecturer. No, this week I'm a clumsy squire trying to get all the washing up done so that I can go out and have some fun in London town, which is actually quite a reasonable description of my life on a day-to-day basis, as we watch through 58 films and counting. Our very own knight is of course Doctor, or should that be Sir, Sam Summers, our guide through one of the most groundbreaking and beloved animated movie catalogues of all time. Sam, how are you doing? As people last heard you in the 101 Dalmatians episode... You've got coronavirus. Are you are you on the mend? How are you? I'm on the mend. I'm officially allowed to leave the house, uh, which has been nice. I've been to Morrison's. Oh, um, wow. <laughs> that's as far afield as I've gotten so far. Uh, I've still got a cough. I've still got a nasty cough, so you might hear that. I still don't have my taste back, which is devastating to me. I've got lots of big plans for when I get that back. And I'm putting them off until I get it back. I've had my eye on a um, particular burrito that I'm going to get delivered to my house from a different place to the place where I caught the coronavirus. I was going to say, last time you said, I got coronavirus and I would tell my past self that burrito wasn't worth it. And your immediate plan is to get (laughs) another burrito. For work reasons, I have to watch all of the Fast and the Furious movies in the near future. And the plan is to do that or to like binge most of them as many as I can in a day with a burrito. I've got a very fixed plan in mind for how I'm going to do that. Don't ask why those things go together in my head, they just do. And I refuse to do that until I've got my taste back because it will be a waste of time and money. That uh, that's th- that's what I'm waiting on at the minute. That's where I'm at in my life. <laughs> um, and obviously we're going to be talking Sword and the Stone in this episode. Were you into Arthurian legends as a kid? Were you into the swords and sorcery stuff? Not really. It's never quite been my thing. I think as an adult, I've got a kind of vague interest in it. It was. It's always been something I've meant to get into more. And I really enjoyed giving myself a little crash course in the Arthurian mythology for this episode. But... When I was a kid, it wasn't like there was any real Arthuriana in the ether. There wasn't any, like, big King Arthur. Oh, there was the Warner Brothers movie Quest for Camelot with Pierce Brosnan as King Arthur. That was in the 90s. Uh, I never watched it. <laughs> I watched it a few years ago as an adult, and it's absolutely terrible. It's, it's a fantastically <laughs> bad movie, Quest for Camelot. Gary Oldman is the villain, singing one of the worst songs there's ever been in an animated movie. Look that up. Look up Gary Oldman's song in Quest for Camelot. Right. And then I think the next big Arthur thing was the 2004 movie with Clive Owen. That was the Jerry Bruckheimer one, wasn't it? Yeah. It was kind of Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah, post-pirates. Ish. 
Keira Knightley was in it, and it that wasn't good. I saw that when I was probably too young for it, and was a little bit baffled and not in the least bit entertained. So yeah, not really. Don't have much of a background in the Arthur stuff. What 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 was the one that you just mentioned, Helen? First Night. Nope, never heard of it. Sean Connery, Richard Gere. I've heard no. of them. Okay. No, it's, wow. it just passed okay. both of us by. Well, as you can hear, it's it's not just the two of us this week, and we do have somebody who knows everything there is to know about swords and sorcery, pretty much. We have our very own Merlin, or maybe our very own Mim, you decide. A special guest blessed with vast knowledge of the present, the past, and possibly even the future, with many a magical trick up her sleeve. Welcome to Disneyversity, journalist, author, my fellow Empire podcaster, the one and only Helen O'Hara. Hello. 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 We are crossing the streams. <laughs> we are crossing the streams. It's terrifying. I think I think hair wise, I'm probably more of a Madame Mim, but I would hope to be more of a Merlin generally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, there's I, Arthur. There's been a lot of attempts at King Arthur films and I absolutely understand why. And I also think they all suck. <laughs> so it's it's interesting that nobody seems to be able to do a good one. I think there was a there was one from like the about this time, I think there was one from the late 50s, early 60s that was quite romantic and swoony and, and very, very technicolor. But generally speaking, they all they're all kind of bad. Yeah, I mean, I'd say, like Sam said, I think when we were growing up, there there weren't that many. And when the uh, Bruckheimer Clive Owen one came out, didn't make that much of a splash. I don't don't think I saw that. I don't think we rushed out to the cinema to see that. And then it's only really been slightly more recently. There's been a a couple. Obviously, there was the the Guy Guy Ritchie one, which I didn't see. But I did see that clip with David Beckham, (laughs) uh, which put me off seeing the rest of it. I, I was on set of that one, actually. And, you know, I think... It was a classic case of overcomplicating something that doesn't need to be overcomplicated, at least in that way. And, um, you know, giant elephants, really? Sure. <laughs> Positive, though. Uh, okay. Uh, and it was it was just a very weird film that I didn't think worked quite well. I think it's interesting. It's kind of trying to do the same thing this film does, which is give us Arthur's origin story. Because actually the film was written as the first of six proposed King Arthur movies, hence the subtitle. So, so really, in a way, there's a you know thesis to be written there somewhere about our changing attitudes to the origin story of King Arthur. But no, it wasn't good. Merlin is probably the best King Arthur property. The TV show is probably the best King Arthur property there's been. And even that was, I mean, with all respect to all involved, all of whom were charming, I thought just okay. Yeah, so. it was very, it was it was in the Doctor Who slot, but it was very sub-Doctor yeah. Who for me. I, I remember watching a bit of it, and I think it came after the Robin Hood series as well, and that was the sort of hierarchy for me. You had, you had Doctor Who was up here, and then uh, a, a, quite a drop further down was the quite fun Robin Hood series, and being from Nottingham, I like a bit of Robin Hood. Of course. And then there was a bit of a drop for Merlin for me. I don't think I'd caught much of that Merlin show. I did like, though, The Kid Who Would Be King, the Joe Cornish film. Uh, which kind of dealt in bits of Arthurian legend. I thought that was a fun watch. Yeah, there were some there were some good ideas in that, and I, I like some of the concepts. Again, I just I just felt overcooked at times to me. So I I just it's a weird thing because this is the big English legend. This is the big piece of mythology that you have, and it is bizarre how bad Hollywood is, and I include British cinema uh, sort of there actually. 
uh, is at interpreting that. I mean, in fairness, like at least they try. They've been been ignoring Irish myth for a hundred years now. But the weird thing is, there's loads and loads of kind of complexity there to play with because Arthur in adulthood is this really interesting figure because he becomes this great war leader who we we keep being told is kind of fighting for peace and justice. He's this, you know, paragon of manliness who is cuckolded by his wife and his best friend, you know, and who knows all about that and who kind of, in most of the legends, is kind of not fine with it, but kind of resigned to it. It's a weird, weird, fantastical realm and nobody seems to do it well. I don't understand why. We're about to get Green Knight with Dev Patel, which looks quite good. A lot of people Mm. are really excited for it. That's Arthur adjacent. Yes. And I think maybe one of the issues with it is that Arthur's life is like the main stories that people know are the beginning of his life and the end of his life. And what happened in between, which is some of the most famous stories, like the quest for the Grail and the uh, Gwen and the Green Knight, are him sending other people on quests or people going on quests on his behalf. Which is why I think what the Guy Ritchie film was supposed to be, which was like a cinematic universe where we'd get a Gawain film and a Lancelot film and a Galahad Mm. film, that maybe is the best medium for the stories of King Arthur. It's just that that was during that post-Avengers period where everyone was trying to launch a cinematic universe without really doing the legwork that Marvel did and it never quite landed. But I think if there was a successful cinematic universe of Arthur films, maybe that's the medium that it would work best in that suits how those legends are like structured. Absolutely agree. I think that would have been a really, really good uh, approach. And in the same way, I think... Um... The Antoine Fuqua, the, the Jerry Bruckheimer King Arthur with Clive Owen in, in whatever it was, 2004, was a really good premise because it went the sort of Bernard Cornwell route of, of kind of trying to ground Arthur in a reality of the time period and the real politics and, and invasions and stuff that happened in, you know, whatever it was, fourth, fifth century. And that was really, really clever. And in the Bernard Cornwell books of that, of that nature, it works brilliantly. That Arthur story unbelievably great and yet we didn't really get that at all because the story made no sense they've got romans going north of hadrian's wall the whole point of which is that romans (laughs) don't go north of hadrian's wall so yeah it it didn't work no historical anachronism will pass helen o'hara i mean come on guys come on so we know then a lot of your feelings and your history with uh, arthurian legends then but what about your history with disney movies which are the ones that you grew up on um, well, the very first film I went to see was Snow White, uh, I, I hasten to add, in re-release. Um, and <laughs> I'm not that old. I went to see it at my local cinema. I got so scared when the Wicked Witch appeared that I apparently jumped into my dad's lap, threw up my head, like sort of trying to hug him and basically nearly cracked his jaw, oh, which he still remembers and is still, you know, very upset about. Um, so yeah, I was instantly like hooked. I was super involved in these films immediately. And I just grew up and I went to see all of those 80s ones. And I I was there during the doldrums. I'm pretty sure I saw the re-release of this in what was it, 1983 or so. I probably would have gone to that. I was a little bit older when the Renaissance hit, but luckily I had younger brothers and sisters. So I was able to selflessly volunteer to take them (laughs) to the cinema and see The Little Mermaid and Aladdin and, and all the rest. So I kept going until probably the mid 90s. And then I did get a bit too old, but I missed the kind of, you know, not very good ones. 
And I was back on board for Lilo and Stitch, so that's the main thing. But like Titan AE and Atlantis and stuff, I was like... You were out yeah. at that point. I mean, I, I, I probably di- I did see them, but I was not engaged in them at all. I'm intrigued because we're heading into uh, a new era shortly, which is that 80s, like late 70s and 80s era. And I don't know many of those films at all. And I know by reputation, it's not Disney's uh, brightest period. But did you enjoy watching those films when you were growing up? Did you did they mean a lot to you? Or could you tell as you were watching them that they weren't as good as, as maybe some of the uh, earlier classics? They didn't stick in my head in the same way, you know. Um, I wasn't aware. I didn't have critical, <laughs> let's say, critical knowledge really at that point. But I, they just didn't stay with me to the same extent. And other films around the same time did, you know, um, an American Tale, which was obviously Don Bluth had left Disney. I think I'm right in saying Sam, you'd know better than me, because he was part of that great exodus of talent that then went on to seed the rest of Hollywood. And and I loved American an American Tale. I just adored it. And that song in that film still draws a tear to my eye. I think it's amazing. And so I, I, I kind of probably ended up following the diaspora, if you like, rather than Disney in those years. But The Little Mermaid instantly got me back in. Instantly. I thought that was astonishing. And then it only really started to lose me. I mean, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, yes, yes. Lion King, I've never been so into. And I think you and I disagree <sighs> on this, Ben. Yeah. Oh, Lion King's huge for me. I'm not so into the animal Disneys. Mm. Animal-led Disneys tend to fall further down the list to me. So yeah, I have, a, I have, a, I have an on-again, off-again, if you will, relationship to Disney. And um, and it didn't help probably that some of those 80s classics were animal-led. I don't mind the rescuers. I have a lot of time for the rescuers, actually. But Basil the Great Mice Detective and things like that were a bit like, dogs talking. All right, fine, whatever. <laughs> um, and, and like, and I think this kind of ties into Sword and Stone, I was extremely hyped for The Black Cauldron and then I saw it, so. I I will infer from that that it didn't live up to your expectations. I'm intrigued to get to that. I have no, no knowledge of what The Black Cauldron is about other than I presume some kind of witchiness. Welsh legends. Woo! Right. I mean, on paper, a great idea. The books are great. And you mentioned uh, Irish legends. Thank God for Cartoon Saloon, who are flying the flag on the uh, yep. Irish legend front, especially in the animation zone. But I wanted to ask, so those are the Disney films you grew up on, but which are your favourite Disney films now? Which ones hold a special place in your heart? Well, the aforementioned Lilo and Stitch. I just think the character work in that is extraordinary. Everybody loves Lilo, Lilo and Stitch. I'm going to have to wait God. so, so long to see this. It's going to be like a year down the line at this point. Just just sneak in, just sneak in and just watch it beforehand. You, you won't regret it. I think Sam it's would boot greatest. me off the course. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't be happy about that. No, oh, you've no. got to wait. You've got to watch them in order. Wow, that is mean, dude. That is. <laughs> he's never seen it. Oh, that's hard. Anyway, so so yeah, so that's my favourite of this century. Little Mermaid before that and Sleeping Beauty before that, probably. Those are, those are probably my t- top three in no particular order. I am literally drinking from a Melissa mug as we speak. Yeah, so love yeah, to see it's... it. Super on brand. <laughs> Very on brand. It also says in the back, I look good in black. It matches my mood, which amuses me every <laughs> single time I read it. So, so yeah, I think those are probably my top three. I'm probably missing some, but those are the ones that come to mind. So the Sword and the Stone, obviously we had spoken at one point, you might have come on for Sleeping Beauty and said we did the Sword and the Stone. Why did you pick this one? There's probably more to say about a film that isn't very good <laughs> than about one you really, really love. If I was here for for Sleeping Beauty, I'd just be like goofing off about Ava and Durrell the whole time and, uh, you know, regretting the fact. I've been to Comic-Con a few times and there is a booth that sells Ava and Durrell concept art and prints and every time I go and look at it and try to convince myself that $1,200 is a reasonable amount really and and I can't I haven't yet but 
like every time it's a risk you know so yeah so so i would just i would just bore on about him i just think he's incredible but yeah the sword and stone is interesting because it takes i think some of the same visual style and takes some of the same color palettes and and color tones and i suspect some of the same research into medieval art that they did for for sleeping beauty and then puts it to use in service of this much lighter sillier story and i realize as i say that that sleeping beauty is also pretty silly at times but you know, this is this is sillier. I think it's okay to say. I think that's fair. Well, that is enough from us. We're all sat down, the register's complete, and it's time for class to begin. This time, after the contemporary canine couture adventure of 101 Dalmatians, we're heading back to the Dark Ages with 1963's The Sword in the Stone. Right then, Sam, we've teed up that this is sort of Arthur-adjacent. It's a King Arthur origin story. What can you tell us about the plot of The Sword in the Stone? Sum it up for people who may not have seen it. Such as there is one, because this is not one of the plottiest Disney movies. I mean, a lot of the movies we've looked at aren't mega plotty, but this is on the less plotty end of the plot spectrum. So, following the death of good King Uther... Britain is left without a ruler as many try and fail to pull a mysterious sword from a stone and determine the next king. Meanwhile, a young squire named Arthur, nicknamed Wart, unfortunately, meets the (laughs) wizard Merlin, who predicts that he's destined for great things and decides to prepare him through a series of educational adventures in which they transform into various animals. Eventually, Arthur's destiny leads him to the mysterious sword, which he handily pulls from the stone before being reluctantly declared the new king. So there we go. That is the plot of The Sword and the Stone, as much as there is one. And I guess heading into this one, uh, there's uh, yeah various things happening. So we spoke in 101 Dalmatians about the Xerox process and how much that changed the animation style of the studio and their, their technique, their process. And I remember we were talking about how that was really controversial with Walt, the look and feel of it. It was something that he was not massively on board with, but you can still feel that in, I think, especially the characters in this one. So how did that become a regular part of the Disney process? I think mainly because it was cheaper. So yeah, we talked about last time, Walt wasn't a big fan. He didn't like the look of Dalmatians, but he did acknowledge that. It was a big money maker, especially because it was quite cheap, and Sword in the Stone had about 60% of the budget of Dalmatians. And that's not because Disney's doing really badly as a company at this point, but as we've said before, Walt was more and more focused on live-action films. We've got Mary Poppins is about to ramp up, which is, in many ways, their biggest undertaking in that arena. We've got Disneyland in full swing, and the company was just wanting to spend money elsewhere. Meanwhile, Walt's brother, Roy, who was, like, the finance guy, as we've mentioned before, he pretty much thought the animation was finished now. He was happy to shut the whole thing down because they'd had so much success by this point with re-releases of the older movies. He thought, well, we've got enough movies in the can. We've got stuff that people really like. We can just keep doing those over and over again forever. So really, the animation studio was staying alive by virtue of the fact that it could make things really cheaply. And the Xerox process was part of that. I think another factor is that this is the first Disney movie to be directed by one person, to have one credited director. 
And that is a guy called Wolfgang Wooly Reitherman, who was a big champion of the Xerox process. And he was a big champion of getting things done quickly. He's also the guy who brought in the practice of reusing old frames of animation, like tracing over them to with new characters to place them in a different context. There's a little bit of that in The Sword and the Stone. The next film, The Jungle Book, is where that really kicks into high gear. Reitherman was one of the nine old men. He's not going to be one of our nine old men of the week because we'll be talking about his work as a director for the next, like, five or six weeks. So he was one of the three nine old men who worked as a sequence director on Sleeping Beauty before being promoted to director on Dalmatians, and he would be more or less the sole director of Disney's films for the next six or seven. Just a, a brief bio... He did Monstro in Pinocchio, he did the dinosaurs in Fantasia, he did the amazing chase scene in Sleepy Hollow, in The Adventures of Ichabod and Mr. Toad, and the climactic fight in Lady and the Tramp in Sleep and Beauty. So he'd shown himself to be capable of handling drama and tension and skill, which I think is something, a skill which behooves a director, someone who can handle the big picture. Walt's reasoning, when asked for making him basically the head of the studio, was uh, he trusted his opinion because he saw him as the all-American boy, which is both incredibly vague and also very Walt. It's like, oh, he's an all-American boy, so I trust his opinion because he's representative of, like, the everyman, maybe? Maybe that's what that means? Ritherman thought that it was because he didn't stir conflict, because he kind of kept himself to himself, so Walt figured that he wouldn't argue if he tried to lay down the law. So yeah, we'll not be doing an Old Man of the Week on Ritherman. That's the basics on that guy, and we'll be evaluating how he develops as a director over the next few episodes. Interesting. I mean, the other thing technically with this one is that we have another new aspect ratio. The uh, We were back to the Academy ratio for 101 Dalmatians, but we're in a slightly more widescreen format. It's not CinemaScope, though. It's not that kind of big, crazy widescreen uh, that we had there. So what was behind this choice, do you know? Okay, so this... The, no, no, no. It's, it's a bit of a saga. <laughs> not, not a hugely interesting one, but you asked. <laughs> so this was actually drawn in Academy. Okay. So my DVD is in Academy, right? Ah. So Disney Plus is actually chopping off a bit of information at the top and bottom of the screen. The Disney Plus version is 1.75 to 1. Which is, it's basically widescreen. It's slightly unusual, I think. It's like slightly wider than widescreen. And that was the suggested ratio when Disney sent this to cinemas, because widescreen was standard in theatres at this point. But Walt knew that they'd be showing this on TV at some point, because Walt Disney has the Disneyland TV show on ABC, which we've talked about in the past, and... Every It's like an anthology, every episode of Disneyland is something different, but a lot of the episodes were shortened versions of feature films that Disney had shown in the cinema. So Walt was being forward-thinking, he knew that this was going to end up on TV, which at this point was still shown a square aspect ratio, so they drew this in Academy, but suggested, intended for it to be projected in widescreen, and that is what Disney Plus preserves. But previous home releases were all in Academy. So there you go. Interesting. Interesting for about five people, probably. No, but... <laughs> as soon as you said, oh, we're two of them. <laughs> yeah, as soon as you said they cropped it for Disney Plus, I was like, oh wait, so I haven't seen the whole thing. But it sounds like there's no necessarily definitive version if they kind of yeah presented it in Academy, but in a way that could easily be cropped, and you're not missing anything. Um, yeah, you're not missing anything significant. It's not like when they cropped The Simpsons for widescreen and 
you're missing jokes at the top and the bottom of the screen or anything. So then, I guess before we uh, head into our main discussion, how long had Disney looked at doing an Arthurian legend? Because they've pilfered from all sorts of bits of fairy tales and uh, various novel sources. How long were they looking at at doing something Arthurian, and, and how did they wind up with this as the story to tell? So this is another one that had been on the table for quite a while. Um, It's based on the novel by T.H. White, The Sword and the Stone, which was released originally in 1937. And it's not based on, it's inspired by Thomas Mallory's, like, 15th century tome, uh, Le Mort d'Arthur. Mort, that's French. Mort d'Arthur. Mort d'Arthur? The Death of Arthur. Uh, Mort, I think, yeah. Is the English... It's got an A. Let right. the record show, Helen is holding up the book. Helen has <laughs> yes. uh, Le Mort d'Arthur. Uh, and it's a, enormous. It's massive. <laughs> so that was for a long time the definitive retelling or like compilation of the various Arthurian legends. And T.H. White's original idea was to write a prequel to it, which is The Sword and the Stone, detailing Arthur's childhood. And he would eventually follow that with a series of novels which would become known as The Once and Future King, which is basically an adaptation of the rest of Mort Arthur. So Disney snapped up the rights for this quite quickly. It came out in 1937. In 1941, we've got White writing in his diary that he was the author of the next Walt Disney full-length feature, which obviously he was not because he did not write Saludos Amigos. (laughs) As far as I know, he was not the author of that. So like Alice in Wonderland, like Peter Pan, this is something they've had the rights to, or had the idea for since before the war. The war interrupted things, and they eventually came back round to it. And interest in this project, because this wasn't high priority, this wasn't like Alice and Peter where straight out of the gate were like, okay, let's do these things we've been meaning to make for years. Interest was rejuvenated in this by the 1958 publication of The Once and Future King, the collected edition of White's Arthur novels, which was divided into four books. Sword in the Stone is the first. It was rewritten, or bits were added, rather, would be more accurate. Disney only has the rights to the 37 version, which is a bit more, I think, child-oriented, and the 58 version of The Sword in the Stone from The Once and Future King is a, a bit more adult and a bit more satirical and informed by the events of World War II, I believe, which is something we might talk about later. So that book was a really big hit, and it was the basis for the 1960 Broadway musical Camelot, of which Walt Disney was a really big fan, and notably Julie Andrews played Guinevere on Broadway in Camelot, and that's where Walt discovered her, later to cast her in Mary Poppins. So there's a link. The champion of making The Sword and the Stone was Bill Pete, who was the screenwriter of 101 Dalmatians. We talked about him last week, and he was really Disney's first screenwriter. He was was the first guy to be solely tasked with writing a Disney movie in that case. And Walt obviously thought that he had something good in his hands with this Bill Pete guy. Dalmatians was a success, and Pete wanted to do The Sword and the Stone. The other option which all of the animators wanted to do, was Chanticleer, which is... Do I know Chanticleer? Nope, I don't know what that I is, but Helen is smiling. <laughs> <laughs> Helen's nodding, Ben's shaking heads. Chanticleer is a French folktale about a rooster who thinks that the sun only comes up because he crows, which is also the basis for the best joke in the movie, Peter Rabbit 2. 
Okay. Bring it all full circle to the most recent animated releases. Amazing. Yes, there is an excellent running Chanticleer joke in Peter Rabbit 2, which is not an excellent movie. There's a really good Chanticleer joke, in my opinion. So the animators all wanted to do Chanticleer, and the nine-year-old men, in particular Mark Davis, who was our nine-year-old man of the week last time, who animated Cruella de Vil, really wanted to make this Chanticleer movie, and they had all of this art and like storyboards and concepts for this movie. And Walt dismissed it completely out of hand, saying that you can't get enough personality out of a chicken. No what? one's going to fall in love with a chicken. Yeah. You can't no make one's... the movie. Just cut to 2016 or whatever it was, seeing Moana for the first time and me falling head over heels for <laughs> Hey Hey the Comedy Chicken. But in his defence, that's a supporting chicken. Like, look yes. at Chicken Little, which had one of the greatest ad campaigns for an animated movie I've ever seen. And I think, as I remembered, underperformed at the box office. Chickens are hard, man. Chicken run. So- Ardman did it. Come on. Okay, Ardman. Okay, the that's exception perfect. improves the rule. All right, fine. <laughs> Another Chanticleer is... Don Bluth, the aforementioned Don Bluth, who left Disney to start his own studio. We'll be talking about him a lot more in the future. He made a Chanticleer movie in 1991 called Rock-A-Doodle, in which Chanticleer is sort of an Elvis analogue, and it's one of the craziest like mainstream animated movies there's ever been. I really do hope we do Bluthiversity at some point so that we can talk <laughs> about Rock-A-Doodle in more detail. Anyway, so Mark Davis was so gutted by this that he quit animation and he moved to Imagineering and made some great rides like Mr. Lincoln and Pirates of the Caribbean, which we talked about last time. But so the animators, none of them wanted to work on Sword in the Stone, which you could say is quite telling. Bill Pate really wanted to work on Sword in the Stone, which is, I think, very ironic because... Okay, I don't like this movie very much, because spoilers for the reviews, this is probably (laughs) the worst feature-length movie we've looked at so far, right? Possibly better than some of the package films. This is easily, I think, the worst feature-length movie we've looked at so far, and I lay almost all of the blame on Bill Pate. This has a shocking script, right? The, the, The dialogue is lackluster, the plot is borderline non-existent, It's not a million miles away from what White was doing in the novel. The novel is also very episodic. But as a screenwriter, you should be making more of an effort to make this into something that resembles a movie, to give this Mm -hmm. some kind of propulsion, to give this some kind of overarching narrative. And there were ideas for that, which were discarded, which we'll talk about. But yeah, the guy who really wanted to make this movie was also the guy in charge of writing the script, and he dropped the ball, in my opinion. Bad move. Let the animators make Chanticleer. That's if I could change anything in Disney history. Well, probably not. There's, there's probably things that would come ahead of that. But if I could change anything about the making of this movie, it would be don't make the movie, make the chicken one. <laughs> Shots fired at Bill Pete. <laughs> that was you, relentless. Uh, but I think everything you said is basically true. And I'm sad that we never got to see the, the chicken movie, the lost uh, Disney chicken movie. But yeah, very last thing then before we head in. Uh, Helen, how recognisable is this to you as an Arthurian story? Because it, our, our central character is a young Arthur. But from Mm. even the vague, small amount that I know about Arthurian legend, this just feels like its own thing. Character? That's a really strong word for (laughs) wars. God bless him. Um, Look, he's, he's, he's a charming, gangly kid, you know, but I think that's one of my major criticisms of the film is that he doesn't really seem to have very much in the way of character. And if you're having a coming of age story, which is what this should really be, you need to have visible coming of age 
for your central character, which in no way happens. And I'm not talking visually he has to change. I'm talking visually you have to see him respond to the lessons that he's learning and develop new character traits as a result. And we see none of that. He starts off the film as a nice, obliging kid who's trying to do his best for everybody, and he finishes the film exactly the same way. There's no there there, you know. So that's a major, major problem as as an Arthur story goes. And I think it is actually a worse take on that than the book. I mean, the book, T.H. White was a teacher in his day job before he, he started making money from writing. So the book was very much designed for kids to be able to pick up and read and, you know, get some kind of adventure from. And that's why, you know, he added in all of this, these slightly moralistic lessons, basically. So in the book as well, Arthur does get transformed into animals and that becomes a way to teach him lessons he's going to have to know if he's going to be the greatest king ever you know and they actually don't really use the same animals here for the most part even when they do even when it's also a bird it's a different kind of bird like there's and so they kind of lose all the specificity of the lessons okay he's transformed into a perch and he fights a pike and he learns that you have to outthink your opponent. But that isn't the kind of lesson <laughs> that he's learning in the book. He's learning more lessons about, you know, standing up to bullies, about not becoming a bully yourself when you do so, about working together with other people and not just for your own gain. And I think some of those lessons probably sounded a bit communistic <laughs> to <laughs> Disney in the 1960s. So they kind of got lost. And it is to the story's detriment because they are better moral lessons and and. Once you take away any kind of moral here, you just end up with this woolly thing, this concept where he's turning into animals and learning how to fly. But then he, you know, how are you going to put that into practice as king? You, exactly. How are you going to put your, all your flying lessons into practice as king? It's not going to happen. You're going to be a bloke when you're yeah. king. You're not going to be king of the bloody birds, are you? Well, exactly. It's... Whereas if you turn into an ant and you have to learn the difference between done or not done then you learn about finishing projects. You know, that's a useful thing for a leader to learn. Ugh. Yeah. In the book, he is... I mean, this is kind of discarded. We're getting well ahead of ourselves, but I, I like where this conversation's going. So in the book, and in Arthuriana generally, mm. he is meant to be the long-lost son of the previous king, right? The long-lost son of Uther, yeah. or, or a descendant of Uther in most versions. Yeah, a son of, yeah. That is not implied in this, and I think the implication is that this takes place a long time after the death of the king, in fact. So there's no suggestion that Arthur is king by inheritance. So the stone, the sword in the stone, is meant to be that, oh, the guy who pulls the sword from the stone, it's magic, and he is the descendant. That's how we're going to find the son of the king, right? In this, the implication is much more that the person who is the best person to lead will pull the sword from the stone. The person who's the nicest guy, the person who's going to be the best king, will pull the sword from the stone. Which, I had this whole reading in my head of like, oh, is this more of an Americanized version? Because it's more of a, obviously not a democracy, but it's more of a meritocracy as opposed to an inherited monarchy and the sword is going to tell us who's the best guy for king. But no, not really. That's more the case in The White where he's learning all of these specific lessons about how it would be a good ruler and he changes as a person as a result. In this movie, he just happens to be there and pull the sword from the stone and it doesn't feel earned at all. It feels like he could have pulled the sword from the stone at the start of the movie and it would also have worked, right? Instead, we need to see... They could have even done that. They could have even have him try at the start and he's not worthy Thor-style yet. And then, over the course of the movie, the lessons that he learns prepare him to do that. But as we go through these little episodic adventures, 
it's going to be very difficult to nail down what he was supposed to learn from each of these, right? And even when he does learn something, it's, it's sometimes by accident and not by Merlin's design. It does not work as a script. Anyway, okay. let's talk about the movie. Yeah, now. I was going to say we're, we're we're basically already there, and but let's thing. let's see if between the three of us we can pull this sword from the stone, if only to cut this film down to size. Let's do this thing. In classic Disney style, then this one begins as ever with the opening of a book—a lovely hardback with big red, golden embossed covers on it. Uh, and as we flick through the pages of the book, we get a sung intro. We get the first few pages of the book sung to us as the audience, telling us that King Uther has died, an heir is needed, and in London Town, the sword in the stone is ready to be lifted. So. Uh, Helen, I can already tell you have notes <laughs> on this opening uh, with the book. <laughs> well, I, I just did have a quick note. I mean, the, the idea of good King Uther, he is supposed to have been a great uh, king or high king of all the Britons, to quote Mar- Monty Python. But, you know, he is also someone who is supposed to have essentially raped Arthur's mum. So Arthur's mother, Igraine, was married to the Duke of Cornwall or the King of Cornwall, depending on your story. It doesn't matter. Um, And uh, he declares war on Cornwall, basically, because he fancies her. And while her husband is off fighting and I think actually getting killed, Uther gets Merlin to enchant him to look like the Duke of Cornwall, goes off and shags her. And then with her husband dead, later comes back as himself and is like, hey, cool, everybody, we can get married now. Oh. Yeah, so it's really icky, basically, Super his origin yikes. story. Yeah, and, and good King Uther is something I'm a little bit like, are we sure about? Bad King about, Uther, because, very bad yeah, King bad Uther. Bad King Uther. Yeah, even if you were, you know, Eric Banner in that one film. No, won't, won't allow it. So other notes that I have, a legend is sung, goes the narration, of when England was young, which this would not be England, right? This would be pre-England. Like Arthur, the legends of Arthur predate the Anglo-Saxons or or he fought the Anglo-Saxons. So it wouldn't be England, it would be Britain. Well, kind of. So he kind of, he fought the Saxons, actually. So he was kind of the Anglos, if you will. Oh, okay. Interesting. So, um... And that's where the Burn Cornwall books do so well, is they basically do kind of position Arthur as this war leader who sort of unites England. So, yeah, it's you kind of have to take it as kind of Roman England. So up to Hadrian's Wall, over to the Welsh Marshes, that kind of part of the island being post-Roman, immediately post-Roman. And Arthur or someone like him may have emerged as some kind of war leader who may have somewhat united these countries and may have somewhat fought the Saxon invasion, which was happening in immediately post-Roman times. So I think that's the, to the extent that there's any historicity to the Arthur legends, which most people will tell you there is absolutely not. But to the extent that there's any, it's this idea that at that time in history, post-Rome, at the time of the Saxon invasion, there was this person who tried to unite everybody to fight back. So I would allow England in that sense. And it's actually more accurate than Monty Python's King of All the Britons, possibly, depending on your definition of Britain, which is, again, woolly. And White kind of mangles this as well, right? Or like, generally, when we think of Arthur, like the iconography we imagine is like medieval. Mm. What, like 14th century, which is when White's novels are set. The complication there being that we know very famously who was king 
at various points in the 14th yeah. and 15th century, right? Yeah. We have the definitive list and Arthur's yeah. not among them. No. And White's take on this, I believe, is that in it, it's almost like a parallel universe where the actual kings, like your Richards and your Henrys, are mythical. They're the myths and legends and the wow. Arthurian stuff is real. Is so real. he sets it in the 15th <laughs> century, which is when Mort de Arthur was written. And Thomas Mallory, the author of that, is a character at the end of The Once the and Future King. He yeah. kind of writes everything down. So yeah, complicated chronologically, but this film looks more like the 15th century, I would say, known very little. Yeah, I think the, I mean, the artwork's probably a little bit younger than that. So like uh, Sleeping Beauty, you know, the artwork in that is inspired by the likes of uh, the Trebuchet de Duc de Berry. I'm probably mispronouncing that, but that was, I think, I want to say like 1300s or something like that. So it's a little bit earlier again. Yeah, Play Armor, as you say, that is super later. That is like 1500s kind of time. I mean, you can go see it in, in, you know, the likes of the Tower of London and stuff. So it's ridiculous to have that in any Arthurian film. And again, that's one of the things that Clive Owen's film did quite well is that they were basically wearing Roman armor. So they still had superior tactics. They still had superior know-how, but they at least had some kind of vague kind of reason to have that. And yeah, and then the Saxons were a, you know, big rabble. Of course. I mean, as somebody who doesn't know the difference between their 13th century medieval castles and their 15th century, um, I I mean, I know I feel like such a Philistine. The general sense I got from the opening of this film, it has these quite jazzy opening credits with jazzy music. We spoke about in 101 Dalmatians how it was very 60s. It was presenting contemporary London and the, the kind of look that you get from the Xerox animation and the sort of jazzy score kind of fit that time period. For me, this was a weird sort of mashup between some of the look and feel of Sleeping Beauty with it being medieval, with this kind of slightly jazzier, kind of looser tone of the 60s. And that was a weird mix that I didn't really gel with. I don't know about you guys. Well, this is the first film, isn't it, from the Shermans? Uh, yes. Disney. So this is a big milestone for Disney, and I'm assuming. Yeah, it's the first movie for which the songs or the first animated movie for which the songs were written by Richard and Robert Sherman who would become the definitive Disney songwriters of the 60s and 70s. They worked most famously on Mary Poppins. They did the songs for Winnie the Pooh, uh, some of the songs for The Jungle Book. They did Bedknobs and Broomsticks. So big deals. And they did loads of like theme songs for the opening credits of, of live action movies as well. And eventually Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, which wasn't Disney, but is also has some Chitty Bang Bang and <laughs> their songs on this are generally not good. I was about to say <laughs> I that. Would say. I, I know these guys are a huge deal, but the songs in this are kind of whack. I think they're pretty rubbish. Arguably, barely songs, mm-hmm. I would suggest. <laughs> um, Merlin, I think the most famous song from this movie is Hicketus Figetus. Which is the song that which Merlin not sings? No, it's not fair. no sorry. <laughs> Everyone's like, hey, it's figures, figures. <laughs> it's probably the best remembered. It's the song that Merlin sings when he packs up his suitcase. <laughs> it sounds very boring. He does it with magic. It's sort of this film's version of Bippity Boppity Boo, and it shows the Sherman's proclivity for nonsense, which would come up once again most famously in Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious and in various other songs that they would do as well. It barely has a melody. And I think one issue is that the people who sing the songs in this movie can't sing. 
So the guy who voices Merlin, God bless him, he can't sing. So he's just kind of speaking these lyrics. And I think it's the same with the woman who voices Madame Mim, who gets probably the other big number in the movie. They can't sing. So they just speak the words and the melody really doesn't come through at all. The exception is this opening song, which sounds more medieval. It's sung by some kind of bard on like a, I'm just going to say a lute. It might not be a lute. It's, it's a lute-esque one. <laughs> it's like a little acoustic number which soundtracks the turn and pages of the book. And it reduces us to the story of the Sword and the Stone. It's the best song in the movie. And this might be one of my favourite bits of the movie in general. We've talked about the artwork, which gives us a tease of this Sleep and Beauty, like, tapestry-inspired style, which doesn't really come through in, in most of the rest of the movie. And I like this music. It's like, A legend is sung of when England was young and knights were brave and bold. It sets the scene really well. Um, it sets the tone really well. Not necessarily that this tone is, is followed through on, but it does give it a nice little old England feel and there's a kind of melancholy to it as well yeah i'd say that is probably the best of the songs as well i had bibbidi bobbidi boo and supercalifragilisticexpialidocious in my notes for the magical packing the suitcase song but it's like hearing like a weird alt universe version of those songs that aren't as good as the ones that we know feels like a prototype of some kind but so once we're kind of into the forest the first character we really properly meet is Merlin. Let's talk about this version of Merlin, because I was intrigued. We see him, he's got a big pointy blue hat, he has a big long grey beard. Did this popularise that image, that version of Merlin in the popular culture? It struck me while I was watching it that he is mega Dumbledore-y. Like, when we see him in his sort of hut in the woods, he has little contraptions and gizmos everywhere, he's like an eccentric older dude with a big beard and a pointy hat. As how long did that image of wizards exist in popular culture and how much did that come down to Merlin here? I think there's a lot. I mean, yeah, I think this is one of the most successful characters in the film, personally. And I think that um, he he has therefore been remembered more than most of the film, uh, to be honest. So I think he does play a role. He he felt very Dumbledore to me as well. You can absolutely see this. Well, he he literally does send a defenseless twelve year old, you know, <laughs> out into perilous situations and just go. It's a learning experience. Go with it. I think the Pike, you know. So like he feels extremely, extremely Dumbledore. I mean, he he must have come from somewhere. I'm sure there were other um, Merlins at the time who were, you know, similarly attired. And I think there was a bit of a, an idea of, you know, magicians wearing robes and having pointy hats already. Yense in Fantasia yeah, looks yeah, of course, very similar. Yeah. Obviously a very different art style, but he's wearing basically the same outfit. It's the same mm. colour, even. Um, so that, that idea of the pointy-hatted, long-bearded wizard must predate this by quite some time. I'm, um, that's true wouldn't be able to put a pin in it, but it, it definitely existed. But yeah, I think, I think he's kind of probably lingered more than most things um, as a result. And he and Archimedes are great. And I worry that that's why they ended up sucking all the, to the extent there is any narrative meat of the film and, and you know, getting a lot more focus than poor Arthur did. I think it's a mistake to give, I don't mind Archimedes, the owl, Merlin's familiar, I guess you would say. I, I think it's a mistake to give them effectively the same personality. Like if you've got a sidekick character, it should be 
a point of contrast, right? Like if you think, I don't know, Jafar and Diago have completely different personalities that play off each other well. Merlin and Archimedes are basically the same guy. Like Merlin is a crotchety old grouch and Archimedes is a bit crotchetier and grouchier. I think Merlin's a little bit more eccentric, has a yeah. little bit more of a, a like wackiness about him and a little bit more of a twinkle and Archimedes is a bit grouchier. But you struggle to really delineate the characters from one another. Yeah, I think I think Merlin needed to be 10% more harmless and nice and Archimedes needed to be 10% more mission focused to really give mm. them the contrast that they actually needed. Um yeah, between the two. I'd agree with that. In retrospect, what they're going for and obviously they wouldn't couch it in these terms is a genie character is like yes. this is the robin williams genie role the kind of eccentric mentor who another thing that he has in common with the genie is an awareness of contemporary culture and contemporary well he knows the future basically is the way that it's presented in this he knows everything that's going to happen which adds another wacky layer a layer of comedy there in the white the crack with merlin is that he lives life backwards yeah this is a like general his, his thing memory works backwards yeah he like he was born in the future and he's living back into the past so he kind of knows what's coming for everyone it's basically tenet he's he's he is he's the protagonist tenet. In tenet. i don't understand tenet yeah. but i think he is tenet was that what tenet was about <laughs> yeah he's he's protagonist and everyone else is living forwards and he genuinely does have knowledge of the future and that's something they even i think played with in the merlin tv show a little bit in a very strange way, because they obviously had him growing up, so it didn't really make any sense in that sense. But does that but mean yeah. that he can't remember what's just happened because he hasn't experienced it yet? So it doesn't make any sense in the same way that, you know, Tenet's very complicated this way. I think that's why they drop it. They sort of mention it in passing and then just kind of hand wave it and move on. But, like, he does have, you know, like a certainly a Da Vinci helicopter model, if not a modern one, and he has a proper old steam engine and stuff. So, the, you know, and he knows about gravity. I love that the genie thing. I'm so glad you brought it up because, you know, he literally, they play the same gag with him suddenly turning up in his Hawaiian shirt <laughs> from Bermuda. Amazing, amazing joke. But yeah, he's he's meant to be living backwards. But I think that it seems to sort of mean that he lives forwards for periods at a time. That's the only way I can make sense of it. Okay. I, I, think. I mean, in this movie, they don't really mention that. And I think the, the suggestion, they've simplified it to that he can see the future, he can travel to the future, but he's, he's not living life backwards because that opens up this whole can of worms. He is very fixated on the future. And when he when we first meet him, he's pulling a bucket out of a well on a chain and he hates that shit. He wants like running water because he's seen the future. He's not satisfied with what they call the Dark Ages. He longs for the modern, he hates the Middle Ages because it's unsophisticated and everything's more difficult and grimier. But this film and the character has, I think, a more complicated relationship with modernity than that because when he try, he has this like model plane and, and they make a whole set piece out of him trying to fly the model plane and it doesn't work. And then at the end... He goes to Bermuda and he comes back and he says, oh, I've just met Bermuda in the in the 20th century. And I tell you what, you can keep it. So he, he ends up disliking the future and it's like, mm. oh, it's all just a load of modern nonsense. So I don't know. He's got this, this complicated relationship with the past and the future. And it seems to be his motivation, his drive is to evolve Arthur and the Middle Ages out of the Dark Ages and into, into the future, into modernity. And Bill Pate said that he based Merlin on Walt. And I, I'm not really sure exactly 
how. I've heard that their <laughs> noses are similar. I can't say it myself. And just the general grouchiness, but that's certainly not the image that Walt Disney projected. Maybe it was a bit more Merlin-like in private. I think something that they do have in common is this complicated relationship with the future, because Walt is a contradiction in the sense that he is a futurist, but he's also obsessed with the past. And we see that in loads of his movies, we see that in Disneyland, the contrast between Tomorrowland and Main Street USA and Frontierland and all these different, the historical and the futuristic existence side by side. So maybe that's something that Merlin reflects of Walt, this desire for the future, but also this longing for the past and something more simplistic as well. That makes sense to me, yeah. I mean, Merlin, uh, I don't love any of the characters in this film. I I didn't really (laughs) fall for any of them. Merlin is probably the best of the lot. And I think he gets the most amount of personality. And on the opposite end of the spectrum, we need to talk about Wart. We need to talk about Arthur, this little bland kid who, I don't know, is just there for most of the film and sort of just doing things. It's so weird, isn't it? I mean, um, yeah, because, you know, even when he's introduced and he's sort of like this, you know, likable little brother type person you know scrambling after uh, Kay and and trying to keep up and there are glimmers of character there are glimmers where they're clearly trying to do something with him like him announcing he's not afraid and marching off into the forest you know where his older brother fears to tread you know that's meant to show that he's got the right stuff I think climbing up things without fear being completely oblivious to the fact that there's a wolf stalking him is is mostly a comic beat but I think also a sense of Arthur just being mission focused and being you know having his eye on the big stuff so i think there are these moments where they try something but that's like it there's so little through the film and he gets so little as we've talked about character development and and any sense of an arc or any sense of moving forward you know he's he's upset when he gets demerits he does stand up to sir Ector. He does seem to be a little bit bummed that he's not going to be Kay's squire at that one point and get to London, but not that bummed. And, you know, then he just gets back to, you know, transforming into animals with Merlin. So there's no real sense of what he wants, who he is and how he's going to deserve it. It's it's really a missed opportunity, I think. I think that's one of the things I find most upsetting about the film is because I'd like my King Arthur properties to, you know, deal with Arthur a little bit. I mean, it's a real killmonger. Is this your king moment? And it's like, I don't think he <laughs> don't think he is. Also, he has an American accent and that just annoyed me straight away. Right. So this, I mean, what is this? The How to Train Your Dragons school of, <laughs> of you know, growth uh, that you start off American and then grow up to be European. It's bizarre. He's actually three different voice actors because his original voice actor was Ricky Sorensen, who went through puberty during the film's production and his voice completely changed. So we actually have the second set of brothers called Richard and Robert involved in this film after the Shermans. Richard and Robert Reitherman, the director's sons, basically were cast to replace him and he didn't re-record the stuff that Ricky Sorensen had already done so there's just three different voices only two of which sound vaguely similar right. uh, which you know I didn't consciously notice but I don't think it adds to Wart's sense of you know consistent character development yeah I think when you know you know like mm. there's some scenes where he's speaking and then the next line is in like a much much higher voice the idea is that Ricky Sorensen's voice started to break. He already sounds too old, I think, all the way through. He sounds too old for what he's meant to be. Uh, in terms of the accent, it's interesting that you mentioned How to Train Your Dragon because I actually um, have a 
chapter published about that in a book called Fantasy Animation, which you can buy for exorbitant amounts of money because academic publishing. And yeah, I wrote about the accents, the use of accents in that movie. And my take on it is that, yes, the, the kids have American accents and the adults have, in that case, Scottish accents, in this case, English accents. And I think the idea is that because the target audience is obviously American, we are asked to relate to the younger character who is also, much more so, I think, in How to Train Your Dragon, portrayed as akin to a contemporary American child. And the, the kids in How to Train Your Dragon actually have more of an awareness or an, at least an affinity with contemporary like high school popular culture and that's they have like a very high school dynamic whereas the adults are more straight out of a high fantasy like lord of the rings game of thrones style universe where everyone typically has these general european vaguely european <laughs> accents yeah so it's it's like it's a distancing mechanism that they're asking us to relate to arthur while also placing the presumably american audience at a distance from characters like merlin and Sir Ector and people like that, making yeah. them seem more otherworldly, more exotic. I do get that thinking. It's close, however, to a trope that has always bugged the shit out of me in children's filmmaking generally, and, and often Disney in, in particular, which is the tendency to have British-coded or European-coded or whatever characters who speak with American uh, vocabularies. So, mm. I'm, I mean, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, the um, Freddie Highmore version, where you have Charlie talking about candy bars. It's like, they're not candy bars. Those are 100% chocolate bars. They couldn't <laughs> be chocolate barrier. In the, and I don't know why I saw this, but I did, one of the Tinkerbell movies, where you've got this Edwardian father and daughter types uh, pulling up to their house in the country in, in fairness, a, a brand new motor car. And they're talking about getting stuff out of the trunk. No, no, there is no trunk. No, no, that's a boot. It's definitely a boot. You know, and, and just this kind of stuff where they don't trust American audiences, particularly children, to pick up on, you know, to them, foreign words. And it, I find it so annoying because I read Judy Bloom books growing up where every other word was completely foreign to me. She talked about wanting the right pair of loafers to go to school in. She would fasten her bangs with a barrette. And I'm like, what are these words? <laughs> None of them make sense. But I was able to kind of figure it out from context because that's what you do and that's how you learn things. And I genuinely feel like there are generations of American children who have been prevented from learning things by this kind of pandering. Anyway, rant <laughs> over. So we've spoken a bit about Merlin and a bit about Wart, who he's just called Wart for reasons I, I don't really understand. But the vast majority of this film, as we teed up, is basically Merlin and Wart turning into various animals for some very, very heavy handed but also very woolly lessons. And let's talk about some of these animal antic sequences. The first one, uh, they turn into fish, they're underwater, and there's a big pike coming after them. In the second one, they are squirrels, and there is some weirdness happening with uh, Wart's kind of becoming the object of affection of a female squirrel. And then finally, there's a sequence where they're flying as birds. So they make up the majority of the film. Were you a fan of any of these sequences in particular? They, they didn't seem that thrilling to me. I think the fish one's the best. They're all a bit like mini like Looney Tunes cartoons, or they, they all have the structure of a seven-minute cartoon short, like a Silly Symphony or a Looney Tunes or a Tom and Jerry or whatever. The first two definitely revolve around chase scenarios. In the first one, you've got Arthur being chased by the pike, and then you've got 
Arthur and Merlin being chased by some amorous female squirrels. You've got the wolf who's always popping up. He's very Wile E. Coyote-esque. And the scrapes that he gets into are kind of very Wile E. Coyote-esque. So it seems like something that was saw, something that we've seen all the way through the Disney canon, where when in doubt they regress back to that structure of just vague animated antics around a simplistic theme. And each of these, you could chop it up and just say, oh, here's a... You know, the squirrel thing could easily have been a self-contained, like, Silly Symphony cartoon. Wouldn't have been a high-ranking one, but it follows the same structure. Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. It feels like I, I was just thinking of you guys and your quest against shenanigans. Um, <laughs> exactly. While I, uh, while Look, I was I'm not against shenanigans. There just has to be some no, no, kind of plot element yeah. to kind yeah. of, that's pushing things forward. And yeah, not sure that was the case this time. Yeah, the correct balancing of shenanigans, let's say. I think the Pike one is the only one I remembered from when I saw it before. And it's one of the first things I remember in the film. So I think that one's probably the most effective. Arthur is, I believe, a perch in that, which is a species that at least exists in the UK. So well done them for for details. And so do Pike. So that's good. I don't know if you would have had red squirrels at that time. Actually, they would have been grey, wouldn't they? Anyway, that's a point. But the squirrels one, I just wanted to throw things at the screen. I mean, this is not a film that is exactly overflowing with strong female characters. And they are just such ridiculous caricatures. And, you know, a bit weird as well, because Merlin transforms into an obviously older squirrel. He's at least a grey squirrel, which is at least appropriate. That's fine. But then Arthur, I mean... Does she fancy baby squirrels or is he somehow transformed into an adult squirrel? It's bizarre. It doesn't make any sense. Or she's a teenage squirrel. She could be like a 12 year old in squirrel years. But then she's a bit like, you know. Full on. Yeah, it's a bit wrong. Basically, any way you look at it, it's a bit wrong. It's a lot wrong. um, Very sad ending for her. Yeah, really sad. And they don't really go back to that or give her any kind of closure or, you know, allow her to meet another nice manly squirrel. Well, she has a big relative to the audience for this film, a big fan following on the internet. Um, People call her Hazel and write a lot of, like, it's just like become accepted that her name's Hazel in in fandom. And they, you know, draw (laughs) art of her and give, write fan fiction about what happened afterwards. There's some fan theories that she is later becomes Guinevere, that she gets turned into a human and, and they get married. That's definitely <laughs> extra textual. That's not... I, I mean, everybody's going to need a lot of therapy after this. Wart's first kiss is as a squirrel <laughs> with another squirrel. That whole time, he's yeah. basically terrified and Merlin's just letting it happen. He's just like, oh, there's nothing you can do. That's just women, huh? <laughs> and then yeah, there's the, the lady no. squirrel needs squirrel therapy because she's like, what? This this is a human boy? It's Everything about it is really weird. It was very uncomfortable. The trope of the like abhorrent female admirer is another big cartoon mm-hmm. thing. Like, there's a lot of Looney Tunes and MGM cartoons based around that idea and it's obviously very toxic and not good. I think especially the um, older, kind of yeah, matronly yeah. squirrel doesn't come off very well in this. And that's no, indeed. unfortunate. Nor, of course, does... I don't know if we want a segue, but Madame Mim. No, exactly, yeah. Role. Also just awful, awful, awful person. I mean, the only even vaguely positive woman in the entire thing is 
the cook who's complaining that someone else is doing the dishes because <laughs> she thinks it's black magic. So the most positive female character we get in this entire film is a superstitious old biddy, frankly. I mean, you know, I, I know it's designed to appeal to little boys. I know I'm not expecting it to be a feminist masterpiece, but this is really toxic. And I kind of wish that this whole outdated cultural depictions thing occasionally applied to sex as well as race. But anyway... Yeah, they don't they don't mention that, do they? And yeah, it does raise questions of the fact that almost all of these movies are misogynistic. There are more movies from this period with misogynistic elements than there are movies from this period with problematic racial elements, yeah. but there's yeah. no flag for those. It no. would appear on nearly all of them. And is the idea that that's a bit more okay? Or yeah. is the idea that it's more no, nebulous and harder to pin down? I mean, there's a little bit of nebul- nebulousness maybe in, in terms of just a lack of female characters. You know, I can see that being a kind of a nebulous thing that is is difficult to to make clear. But, um, but actually negative depictions... You know, and I wouldn't include something like Maleficent as a negative depiction or the, the Evil Queen. It's totally fine for women to be evil. It's more these playing into these stereotypes of how women are that I find really, really troubling. And yeah, so that, that's almost where you want the sort of the, the warnings. And I mean, look, the weird thing, the more you read about Disney animation and you guys uh, talked about this in terms of 101 Dalmatians, is the amount of totally unnecessary sexism in animation just in animated history i mean so so 101 dalmatian this whole xerox process meant that they could fire women and that may not have been the intention but it was certainly the side effect and they had already completely barred women from animating because they had this theory that women basically didn't have enough of a sense of timing you know all of these rules that we hear about you know or roles that we hear about women can't do because they don't have a natural whatever you know women can't be cinematographers because they can't handle the heavy lifting involved in being a more junior camera person is is the kind of argument that comes up sometimes and for some reason that's still the case even now they're using tiny digital cameras but that's the kind of argument that was still being used in animation where there is you know with some ex- exceptions i'm sure very little heavy lifting and yet women were still barred from it. it. And it's still happening today. And there is still just an astonishing amount of sexism in terms of the roles that women are allowed to do in the big animation studios. And it shows through in things like this because you have nobody senior on staff going, hey, guys, I don't know. Do we think this is cool? Are we sure, though? Because there's nobody there to make that argument. And this is the danger of the monoculture. This is why, you know, diversity is not just good for its own moral sake. It's also good for your art. Because it has, there's somebody there going, guys, are we sure about this bit with the squirrels? Really? (laughs) Are we positive? I think we can do better. Let's have another go at the drawing boards. On that note then, let's talk about Mim, the marvellous Madam Mim, who kind of just comes into this film an hour in and like messes things up for 15 minutes and then leaves. It's another weird structural kind of pacing thing. But yeah, at the end of the bird segment, Wart as a bird falls down the chimney into Mim's house and she is just another typical Disney evil old hag. Oh, there's one bit where they give her a line in one of her, in her fairly tuneless song where she's like, I'm an ugly old creep. And it's like, oh, guys... Are we really, uh... Internalized misogyny much? Wow. Then she turns sexy 
to become the second most yeah. fan-hearted character in the movie, oh, sexy no, really? Madame Mim. People oh, no. like sexy Madame Mim. I, I actually think it is interesting and worth briefly talking about because she doesn't look like a typical attractive Disney character. She doesn't look like a princess. She doesn't look like Cinderella or Aurora. She's got this very cartoony, still arguably quite grotesque design and this very caricatured face. I think she would actually look quite at home in a um, in a, like a modernist UPA cartoon maybe mm. it's that kind of stylized angle she'd fit design. in with the, with the stepsisters maybe yeah maybe yeah but she's not your conventionally attractive Disney princess apparently she was based quite closely on um, a, a woman from one of the lower ranking departments at Disney who um, the animators found attractive that's the story but there you go and I, I, I don't think looking at the design that that would necessarily be a compliment if she was aware of that but, uh, yeah Madame Mim originally feels like quite a random inclusion is also quite a random inclusion in the book I think the book as I say is also very episodic and this is one of the episodes in which Arthur finds himself embroiled in the Disney film and this would have been a huge improvement. She was originally going to be an actual overarching villain. And there's deleted scenes on Disney Plus from like the opening of the movie where she is plotting with the Black Knight, the unnamed Black Knight, a character who obviously didn't make it, to capture the young Arthur so that she can manipulate him and be the power behind the throne. And that was at one point going to be the plot of the movie when the movie had a plot. At such a time the movie had a plot, it was going to be Mim for A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away when this film would have had a plot at some point. Wouldn't that have been nice? But we're with human Mim for a while and she, she gets this song. But I think the good Mim bit is that you get like this wizard duel, basically, between Merlin and Mim, which for me is the most sort of energetic and vaguely exciting part of this film where they're turning into different animals to fight each other. And it has this very childlike, I don't know, would would an elephant beat a snake? And then if you became a <laughs> walrus... I think that was quite a fun sequence. There were various bits of the designs there as well that, Sam, you said, bits of animation are now going to start to be reused in other Disney films. There were bits that felt very Jungle Book to me, like when Mim becomes a rattlesnake. Yeah, what what do you think of this sort of wizard duel sequence? I have a lot to say about the wizard duel, to be (laughs) honest. I have so many bullet points about this. Um, So... First of all, uh, it's the 9 old man of the week alarm. Yeah, I've left it till quite late in the day here. I was worried that I was going to forget it, and I almost did. (laughs) This week's 9 old man is John Lounsbury, the penultimate 9 old man of the week. So he was one of many young animators to be brought in to work on Snow White, where he assisted on The Witch. Pretty cool first assignment, I think. Like Ward Kimball arguably the best nine old man who were talked about on Alice in Wonderland. He was very good at comedy, so I think for that reason he's often overshadowed by Kimball because Kimball was amazing at comedy and he had this immense gift for like zaniness and chaos. Whereas Lounsbury's characters are a bit more grounded, but he did characters like the alligator in Fantasia from the Dance of the Hours ballet sequence. He did Willie the Giant from Fun and Fancy Free. He did George Darling, the dad in Peter Pan. He did Tony and Joe. They might be my favourite Lounsbury characters. Tony and Joe from Lady and the Tramp, the Italian restaurateurs. And he did Horace and Jasper in Dalmatians. So I think that the connection here is a lot of these characters are like antagonistic or have like a real physical presence or have some kind of emotional depth and character beneath 
their wackiness beneath their comedy like tony and joe you get a real sense of them as people not just as like comic creations not just as, as ridiculous characters and like george darling is very funny but he has so much pathos as well and he's like the linchpin of the ending of the movie in a way with his nostalgia for his own journeys in neverland so i think lounsbury can do comedy but he also has this serious more emotional ground underneath it seems to be a theme with a lot of his characters so here he did a little bit of work on Merlin, he did a little bit of work on Ector, Arthur's father figure, who is almost the George Darling of this movie, you can, <laughs> you can see that, yeah? But where he really shines is the wizard's duel, and he handled most of the wizard's duel, which is the best scene in the movie. I've been on record before saying there is only one completely shit Disney movie, and this is not that, okay? Because this has... Some good elements, I like the opening, but the main thing that saves the whole movie for me is the wizard's duel. It's what's worth keeping from this movie. You could consign everything else to the dustbin of history. And Lounsbury's work here is great. It means he has to handle all these transformations, all these shifts in size and weight, constant shifts in expression, because... At one point, each character believes that they have the upper hand. Like, one transforms into something and they get the upper hand and the other guy's scared and then they transform and then that guy's scared. It's like a tennis match, right? So he has to handle these constant shifts in tone and expression and he has to keep their personalities recognisable as they transform. Every meme animal has to be recognisably meme and every Merlin animal has to be recognisably Merlin, which incidentally is also one of the saving graces of the weaker animal sequences is that they do do quite a good job of retaining Merlin and Arthur's personalities as they inhabit these different characters. Yeah, so just a great scene. I don't have a great deal to say about John Lounsbury because he tragically died quite young. He was the first of the nine-year-old men to die. He would go on to work on The Jungle Book and Robin Hood before directing part of what would become Winnie the Pooh. We'll talk more about the genesis of the Winnie the Pooh movie, but it's a compilation of shorts, effectively, and he directed one of them. And he would co-direct The Rescuers with Ritherman. He was the first person to co-direct with Ritherman after a series of solo films. Unfortunately, he died before that movie came out, so his legacy isn't as far-reaching as that of his eight-old peers. But yeah, this one scene is a great testament to his abilities, so that's John Lansbury. Uh... <laughs> there it is, the nine-old man of the week alarm, I love it. Yeah, this is a fun sequence, Helen, I'll get your thoughts in a minute. I, I liked the way that it ended with Merlin becoming a disease. It was like War of the Worlds, basically, <laughs> but in Arthurian times where it's like, do you know what, you're not going to be immune to this disease and uh, that's going to that's gonna see off this threat. Honestly, it didn't stick out for me in, in the same way that the, the Pike scene did, uh, for, for whatever reason. But it, you're right, it's the, it's the inventiveness that you can see in this bit. And I do like that kind of tricksy duel. It reminds me of one of my favourites in, in, in literature, which is in Sandman, where Sandman eventually turns into Hope, spoiler, to, uh, to defeat his demonic opponent, because they're turning into vast concepts. And basically, the demon turns into the end of everything. And uh, Morpheus is like... I'm hope. Oh, boom. That's mic drop moment right there. Boom. It's really good. But um so yeah, this isn't quite up there, but it's it's along it feels like it's along the same lines. So that's the lesson here, right? If there is one for Arthur, it's Brins over Braun. It's a similar lesson in the Pike scene, I suppose. But it's yeah, it's I will not turn into the biggest, scariest thing. Mim turns into a dragon, I will turn into a virus. And the virus is called Malignolitopteriosis. 
And the reason why I've written that down is because in my research for this, I found at least two articles in the American Journal of Infection Control about this disease, about this fictional <laughs> disease. So th there are actual immunologists or whatever, like mm -hmm. actual people who study diseases trying to diagnose MIM. One of them concludes that it is measles, actually, because there would have been a lot of measles mm -hmm. going around, I believe, at the time that the movie was made and also possibly at the time when it's vaguely set and the symptoms are measles-esque. And, it, yeah, it ends with uh, a line that I love, maybe an eventual vaccine could save Madame Mim. <laughs> That's the kind of thing Merlin would have known if she had thought to turn into a germ he could have turned into a vaccine, mm, but she hadn't got future. that knowledge, you know? So I found that fascinating. That is but amazing. The, the thing that really intrigues me about this duel is the form that it takes, because maybe we've just been indoctrinated by Harry Potter to picture wizard duels as basically lasers, basically firing lasers at each other. But this is really inventive, and it, it's the fact that it's centred around like a wizard duel in this world is a duel of transformation, a duel of what animals can we transform into. And this is really fascinating to me because we have a world here where transformation equates to power, where the most powerful characters in the movie are powerful, and we'll get this all the way through with Merlin, because they have power over form. They can transform themselves and others. And I love that because that seems so specific to animation. It's like, like transformation is a core principle of animation. All these old animated characters... Felix the Cat, you know, originally Mickey Mouse and Lords of the Looney Tunes, they are inherently transformative. All of these characters used to have power over transformation. They constantly shift in shape. And this is something that they lost when the Disney features crystallised around realism. So in Snow White, Snow White cannot transform. She is fixed. She's lost these primal powers that the animated characters used to have. But the Queen, she can transform. She's the most powerful character in the movie and a big part of her power is her ability to change her shape. And you get this all the time. The Blue Fairy and the Coachman in Pinocchio, they both have power over other people's forms. They can transform people into things. The Fairy Godmother, she transforms Cinderella and all the animals. Maleficent can transform herself into a dragon. And we'll see it later on with characters like Ursula and, of course, the genie. Like He is the embodiment of this protoplasmic transformativity of animation. So in a lot of ways, the wizard duel kind of feels like the climax of this film uh, in terms of the excitement, in terms of the energy of what we're seeing on the screen, but it's not the climax of the story because, what, we're 75 minutes into the film and the sword is still in the stone, guys. Come on, we've got swords <laughs> to lift. But of course, Wart ends up going down to London. He is Kay's squire once again. And uh, yeah, he, he lifts the sword in the stone. And if me saying that sounds anticlimactic, it's kind of anticlimactic in the film. He realises he forgot to bring Kay's sword with him. And he's like, oh God, I need a sword. There's a sword in a stone. <laughs> he just lifts it out. And I was expecting this to be a huge moment. Obviously, there's a little bit after that because then everyone realises, oh, where did you get this sword from? And, and they put the sword back in the stone and then they're trying to get the sword out of the stone again and he's the only one who can lift it but considering this is like the beginning of the Arthurian legend that moment felt kind of flat to me mm -hmm. I mean they do they try their best with a bit of god light you know Spielberg would be proud but I don't think he'd be proud of anything else in the scene because going to London has been this big thing that's been kind of hanging over Arthur the entire way through the film and we don't really have any big sense of 
London particularly, we have like one overhead establishing shot. There's no sense of real journey. There's no real sense of crowds. It, it feels like they ran out of money a little bit and just didn't have them the money. You want a couple of a night's tale like scenes in there with like people going nuts at the jousting, you know, and it's a bit disappointing. So I, I get the idea of you know, him pulling the sword. It's, I mean, this is obviously from the T.H. White book. You know, he pulls the sword by accident. It's a sort of like, oh, there's a sword. That'll do. Let's grab that one. And just, you know, without thinking about it, I thought that was really charming and funny. I mean, you know, not to mention the MCU, Ben, but like Marvel <laughs> did it with, with Vision when, when he's created and he just Lift casually Mjolnir. picks up Mjolnir. Let's mention the MCU? Never, Helen, ever. <laughs> it's so unlike us, I know, it's weird. But like that kind of throwaway impossible feat is always a really fun thing to do. But the problem is that means you can't have a build-up to it because otherwise it wouldn't be throwaway, it wouldn't have the same kind of insouciance. And this doesn't get the balance right because it needs to be casual and yet then come weighted with significance. And because we are so not really invested in Arthur, God bless him, I mean, it's not like there's a surprise twist. You know, he's been introduced as Wart, but immediately clarified that his name is actually Arthur. So it's not like we're meeting this character, Wart, and it only becomes clear he is King Arthur later on. This is not an MJ kind of revelation. Uh, So, again, it's just frustrating and kind of messy and and also this version of Kay you know Sir Kay does become one of King Arthur's loyal knights and this one you're just like screw you I never want to see you again he's just the worst so that doesn't help either but anyway also what doesn't help it's not in a stone no it's very specifically an anvil the inscription on the sword says it's an anvil on a stone and Arthur says I'm gonna get that sword from that anvil on that stone. It's the sword in the anvil on the stone. It's not the sword in the stone. Are these people idiots? <laughs> because they're all calling it the sword in the stone. It's like, it's the legendary sword in the stone. It's clearly not. You're looking at it. It's in an anvil. What's right wrong there. with people? That does come from the Thomas Mallory, in fairness. It is an anvil there. It's also in a churchyard there, which is part of this weird attempt to reclaim Arthur as a Christian hero, which kind of happened certainly... Mallory did it, and I think it was happening with before that, but, you know, they brought bits of all these Welsh legends and English legends and Breton legends, even that's where Guinevere and Lancelot come from and why they sound a bit French. And they, they sort of, you know, stir them all up in a pot and then added a healthy dose of Christianity. Woo! And so it was, I think, in, I think it was in Canterbury. Certainly the Archbishop of Canterbury is involved in the Mallory version. And yet, and it's an anvil, which just goes against the whole stone thing. Isn't it weird, though, that King Arthur has two really famous stories about how he got his sword? There's the watery tart throwing a sword at him, and there's also the the sword in the stone slash anvil. Is either, you know, a good basis for a form of government? I don't know, but it's weird that there's both. Two different swords, I think, right? This isn't Excalibur. Excalibur's the one from the Lady in the Lake, and this is a different sword, a less good sword. Well, it's very unclear because basically some stories have this as Excalibur. So it's a little unclear. But yeah, you're right. There are some stories where he gets a sword from a stone and then later also gets Excalibur. But, you know, you would think it, it's, it, doesn't, it just doesn't seem neat. It doesn't seem satisfying. It doesn't seem pulled together. I think the problem for me isn't just that it's an anvil and not really a stone or that it's possibly not even Excalibur. It's the fact that this ends on a weird note where 
I think because of how wishy-washy the whole film is, you don't feel as an audience member, oh, this kid is ready for this sword and this responsibility. Even if he's not aware of it at this point, he is ready for it. So it ends with him just like, I'm king now and I don't know what I'm doing. What am I supposed to do? the end <laughs> and that's it so it yeah. feels like yeah. a not very satisfying ending but the real satisfying ending for me was Bermuda Merlin who I'm completely obsessed with <laughs> he comes back from the 20th century in uh, these like funky palm tree shorts a stripy t-shirt he's got red converse on uh, a red cap and when I looked at that I was like that's Sam's entire look. Sam, did you, like, jag that look from Bermuda Merlin? Yeah, not today. It's not my look. I'm in my um, coronavirus outfit, which is black t-shirt and pyjama bottoms. But, yeah, I would say I've got quite a, a Bermuda Merlin vibe. A sort of beachy yacht vibe. Generally. Yeah, I like a Hawaiian shirt and a cap and some sunglasses, definitely. Well, I propose we all go out and try and get ourselves pairs of yellow matching sunglasses. That'll be cool, right, guys? Let's do it. Yeah. (laughs) That brings us then to Discarded, the section of the show where we look back at the original tale the filmmakers drew from and dig up all the weird, strange things that Disney took one look at and thought... No, we can't put that in our film. What are you talking about? So how odd do the Arthurian stories go? I guess are we keeping this to the TH White version? How much does this hue to the Arthurian stories? Well, we've talked a bit about some of the differences between this and the novel. The fact that in the novel, Merlin's living backwards through time. In most versions, Arthur is Uther's son. The specific stories in the novel are quite different and also... More specifically didactic, and the lessons are often clearer, especially in the um, the second version of Sword in the Stone, the post-war version. Some of the stories are quite specifically about the difference between fascism and, and pacifism and things like that. But in terms of mad things that happen, the Meet Robin Hood... Oh, what a novel, crossover. Yeah, I mean, that's another like wildly anachronistic... Either the Arthurian stories are set in like, what, the 4th century, or Ish, yeah. White set in them in the 15th century. Robin Hood, very specifically, is, like, 12th century yeah. reign of King Richard. We know when that's much more, like, localised in time, Robin Hood. Yeah, it's so very it, specific, yeah. It's kind of random that he made that inclusion, but it's cool. You want to see that? I mean, too... Famous medieval guys that would hang yeah, out. You, you want the a novel? scene where at the end it's a post-credit sequence, right? And Robin Hood's there, and he turns around. And he says, yeah. "I've been thinking of putting together a team." And then you cut to black. <laughs> I think it could work. The Merry Men. <laughs> Amazing. So they call him Robin Wood in the novel, which is almost like, were you worried about copyright issues <laughs> with Robin Hood? Oh, and, and they fight a griffin, I think. Yes, Kay slays it. That's neat. I would like to have seen that. Another monster who we don't get to see is the questing beast. Mm. So part of the Arthurian legend is there's a character called Sir Pelinor who is in this. He is Sir Ector's mate who turns up to tell them about the tournament that's going to happen. Not a major character. He's a bigger character in the legends and in the white. And he's the focus of a subplot where he's hunting after this thing called the questing beast, which is like a, a big monster that historically people have become obsessed with and spent the whole lives trying to kill and it sounds kind of cool it's got the head and neck of a snake the body of a leopard the haunches of a lion and the feet of a heart i mean this sounds like an absolute freak to me (laughs) well well apparently it's based on what people thought a giraffe was Mm. that's the inspiration for it supposedly you know the head of a snake and the body of a leopard you can kind of picture that yeah 
wouldn't be too hard to catch. I think I could catch a giraffe. They don't look very fast. Is that true? I don't know if that's true. You're fast-ish, but yeah, you could probably just hold out a a branch and you'd you'd do yeah, big bit of string and trip. Surely you just say it's just think of a yellow horse with a big neck. Come on, rather than be like it's got the neck of a snake I mean, and the body of a lion. And... You're never going to get medieval people excited about your stories if you're telling them stuff like that. You need to like add in a bit of color, you know, a bit of danger, and call it the questing, the questing beast. beast. Which just sounds so cool. So that's most of it from the novel. I don't know, Helen, if you had any particular crazy Arthurian stories or stories of some of the many horrible things that he did that you wanted to regale us with. No, I just, I feel like the, uh, yeah, I mean, in the novel, obviously, he turns into an ant, a badger, a goose. There's just, it's just completely different series of animal transformations, basically, which I think we kind of miss out on, especially because they're all a little bit more specific and a little bit more thought through, I think, in the novel. But no, I, I just, I just really wanted it to be, and this has been my frustration with every single Arthurian film I've seen in the past 25 years, is I always just want it to be bigger and better and more glamorous in a way. I, I kind of buy into the whole Camelot as a magical place and time almost, and, and that's sort of what I want to see, and that's what none of them have consistently delivered. And even something like The Green Knight, I feel like, is is not going to do that because it's not what it's trying to do. It's trying to tell a much more, sort of, I think, morally complicated story, but... Like I just, I just want to see the knights in shining armor and the ladies in the yeah. dresses. You know, it is a prequel, isn't it? So it's hamstrung by yeah. that. You're not going to get Camelot. You're not going to get Lancelot. You're not going to get the bit where he accidentally shags his sister and then hears about a prophecy that, that yeah, yeah, that the result of that union is going to kill him. Kill so him, he yeah. kills every baby who was born what? in roughly the same no. month. I think that one's I think that one's no, I think that one's basically like importing a little bit of the old Herod, you know. Yeah. He puts all the babies on a boat and then sinks the boat and then realizes that he actually missed the one who was actually his son and he's he's And Mordred straight up kills him. What are you going to do? Or, well, doesn't, possibly, because he goes away to Avalon and may return in England's hour of need, yada, yada. But This is the version you want to see, Helen, you sicko. (laughs) No, I don't, though. I don't particularly buy into that particular story. But even if this had had a sort of Narnia-style freeze frame cut to 20 years later and they're all fabulous kings and queens, honestly, Narnia may be where I'm coming from with this criticism. But... um, I'd love to be coming from Narnia. That'd be amazing. You know, I wanted to have that sort of moment that shows you that Wart turns into this great King Arthur and the, the film doesn't even give us that. Just just a little sort of morph, freeze frame to the future. I mean, you know? we've got lasting legacy still to come, but it makes me wonder if, hey, this is a good one to do like a live action Disney adaptation of and just do it big and lavish and not necessarily just a prequel get him lifting the sword in the first 30 minutes and and go from there Uh, it does feel like a lot of the recent arthur films that we've had have been like here's a take on arthur rather than let's just do a very standard but fun and and straight up take on it and with the exception of first night they are all origin stories the 2004 was it is an origin story guy Ritchie is an origin story you know there's a lot of origins like I think if they were going to do a new one, and maybe this is why, you know, we'll, we'll probably get to this, but there has been talk of a, a live action version of this since 2015, and they still haven't produced it because they're probably trying to figure out a better take on King Arthur. 
I suspect. Well, it'll be interesting to see if we finally get that. Robin Hood is another one where it's like, here's a take on Robin Hood. No, just do Robin Hood. Do it straight up. In fact, all the BBC like tea time shows, which thinking of it, if we've already crossed over Arthurian legend and Robin Hood, spring Doctor Who in the mix. Just do it. <laughs> anyway, let's talk about the reviews then. Sam, what did critics have to say at the time about the sword and the stone i think we're all on similar pages of it's not great what did the critics think when it first came out so kind of mixed as we've found there are always papers which were happy to just give disney a glowing review for whatever because i don't know maybe by this point there's people who are just nostalgic for disney and just like the whole disney vibe so the new york times said that it's a warm wise and amusing film the humor sparkles with real knowing sophistication for all ages is the sophistication that they talked about modern things that merlin mentions tv once is that the sophistication i don't know Herald Tribune says, It's a thorough delight. The songs are bright and singable. I mean, that's a lie. The artwork is lovely, debatable. And the plot is charming in twists and turns. Again, not really. My favourite review is from the New Republic. This is one of the many negative reviews. And they called it, A huge coast-to-coast malted milk. What? The giant (laughs) biscuit of a film? (laughs) That sounds delicious, whereas I don't think I'd describe this as a delicious biscuit. (laughs) Oh, that's that's a negative review. It's a huge coast-to-coast malted milk made of pasteurised Arthurian ingredients. I've not heard that metaphor before. They say that like it's a really common metaphor. Maybe it's like an old-timey, mid-century thing. I don't know. Every element in it, pictorial and musical, is derivative of better Disney pictures, and the whole has a factory line feeling devoid of joy. That's maybe a bit closer. I don't know if I'd be that harsh. I certainly wouldn't call it a malted milk, let alone a huge (laughs) coast-to-coast one. Um, Maybe more of a slightly dry hobnob. People love hobnobs, man. Don't don't slag off hobnobs. The chocolate-coated ones are good, but just a plain hobnob is like eating a thatched roof. Anyway, so the critics were pretty mixed on this. What about audiences? Was this a box office hit? 101 Dalmatians was huge for Disney. So did this continue that winning streak or is it up and down yet again? It's another downer. It's quite significantly down. Not a massive flop. And again, it was made for a lot cheaper than Dalmatians. So I don't think they'll have been too gutted with the returns on this. But Dalmatians was a huge hit. That was $14 million. This was 4.5. So it is quite a big dip actually. And Walt wasn't happy, wasn't a fan of the movie anyway, he wasn't a fan of Dalmatians, but that made money, and in the meetings on the Jungle Book, he's given notes, telling them to improve things from this movie, so not hugely happy. With regards to the box office, there is something I wanted to mention in terms of the public reception, because I think it's interesting mainly in the fact that I haven't seen it mentioned a lot in write-ups about this, not that there's many write-ups about this. So we talked a bit about the Camelot musical, this is what about... I was going to say. Yeah, right. So, Helen, what's the other most famous thing about the Camelot musical? It inspired this movie, it inspired the casting of Mary Poppins. Ben, do you know? What's the other most famous thing about the Camelot musical? The, the Monty Python Spamalot musical? <laughs> <laughs> Which is brilliant and has better tunes, actually, even if Julie Andrews is the better singer. But uh, no, it is uh, the fact that, at least according to Jackie Kennedy in an interview published at the beginning of December 1963, so immediately following the assassination and just before this film opened, she said that the soundtrack to Camelot was something that JFK used to listen to, basically, maybe not every night, but frequently before bed at night. And she particularly highlighted the use of this one line 
that he absolutely loved, Don't Let It Be Forgot, that once there was a spot for one brief shining moment that was known as Camelot. And that became the kind of the name for that whole Kennedy era was Camelot. That was the White House in the Kennedy era. It's still used today. If people in American politics are talking about Camelot, they're referring to Kennedy. And I feel like that must have helped the box office, right? Because this it is not a great film. It. Right? It must have done. So uh, that's a very canny bit of self-mythologizing on the part of Jackie Kennedy, I think. That's how it's often read, that she may have exaggerated that in order to create this aura of mythos around the Kennedy administration. And the producers of the Camelot musical have said that in the weeks following the death of Kennedy in this interview, which, by the way, was given to a journalist called T.H. White, a different journalist, but that's just a, a fabulous bit of trivia, that whenever when they got to that line, don't let it be forgot that for one brief shining moment there was a Camelot, people would burst into tears and just howls of dismay in the audience. So this association between Camelot, the musical at least, and the Kennedy administration and Kennedy's tragic death was very strong, seemingly. It was something that people were very aware of and that evoked that memory. And then, like, a couple of weeks after that, this movie comes out... And I haven't read much in the way of audience members drawing that association. It could have helped the box office. It could have hindered it if people didn't want to be reminded of that. I don't know. Also because it so fails to deliver on Camelot. You know, if at least it was called The Sword and the Stone and not The Once and Future King. But, you know, you hear that and you want to hear the full Camelot Arthurian fantasy. And this film singularly fails to deliver on that. So it, it could have done either. Yeah, you know, on one hand, you're getting King Arthur. On the other hand, are you but? And I do think it's interesting because the musical Camelot is about the end of the era. It's about Arthur's downfall. And that line, the context for that is it's at the end. Arthur's about to go off to what's going to be his final battle. And he's telling the Thomas Mallory analogue to like a young a young squire who is telling to tell this story, remind people, and that's obviously what Jackie was doing as well. And I do think it is interesting that this was the last Disney animated movie to be released in Walt's lifetime. And that, at least as far as animation at Disney is concerned, this feels like the end of an era. We'll talk about The Jungle Book. I like The Jungle Book very much. Walt worked on that movie, but he died before it was released. But this feels like, this is the first big, I mean, we're calling this the Bangers era, and we're extending that to include The Jungle Book. This is the first big, like, artistic flop in the Bangers era, right? It, it's been a run of either huge artistic successes or huge commercial successes, often both. And we haven't loved every single thing, but this just does feel like the Disney Animation Studio has reached its Camelot moment. That, you know, the Kennedy administration, the death of Kennedy is seen as this loss of innocence in a way, this end of an era in American politics and in American culture. And that seems to be what's happening in the Disney studio as well. It's following a similar arc, I think, and it's about to, it's Arthur is about to die. It's Disney is about to die. On that cheery note then, what what do we make <laughs> of, uh, of this film? What star ratings are we giving? Uh, Helen, we'll go with you first. I mean, look, I'm a I'm a I'm a forgiving sort of a person, so I'm I'm inclined to go three. But if I'm honest, it's kind of a two and a half, isn't it? I mean, it's eh, 
Yeah, I think I'll go. Since I have the luxury of half stars on this podcast, mm-hmm. I think I'll go two and a half. Yeah, I'm going two and a half as well. Lean fully into the half stars while we can. Um, <laughs> two feels a little bit harsh, but it's it's two barely harsh, a, yeah. it's barely a three. The characters are pretty weak. The songs are pretty weak. It's visually nothing that special. I think it is, as Sam said earlier on, in terms of the narrative features, at least probably the weakest one we've had in this whole podcast so far. It does get a point, at least, for Archimedes' introduction where he goes, who, who, who is dropping in for dinner? Which is superb. So, like, that alone is one star. But did it better in Sleeping Beauty. The owl in Sleeping Beauty is always going, who, at opportune moments. So, we've already had that. Legendary owl. Absolute (laughs) all-timer of an owl in Sleeping Beauty. Archimedes wishes he was the owl from Sleeping Beauty. I don't love this. I think the affection that I have for it is more like me imagining what it could be because I do think there's something really cool. I do have a lot of affection for the Arthur mythology. I think it's really cool to have this mythology in the background of the country from whence I'm from because I grew up really loving Greek mythology and I I was really obsessed with that and we'll talk more about that when we get to Hercules. But I I think it's cool that we have this really rich history of folklore in this country, this isn't quite it. It vaguely evokes it without really achieving any of the tonal qualities that I associate with that. I think that you've gestured to, Helen. Um, I like the transformation sequence. I quite like the opening, which I think comes closest to approximating what I imagine in my head when I think of a Disney Arthur movie. But yeah, I think two and a half is about right. It's definitely the worst feature that we've had so far, easily. Now it's time for Lasting Legacy, because a Disney movie is never just a Disney movie. And in the world of straight-to-DVD sequels, theme parks, live-action remakes, crossover movies and more, there's a whole universe for each character. And I want to start with theme parks this time, because when I was seven, I went to Disneyland Paris for the first time, and one of my memories from that trip, so many of them, was going to the castle at Disneyland Paris. Sam, remind me, was that the Sleeping Beauty castle with the square trees? In Paris, it's Sleeping Beauty, So it's Sleeping Beauty, but I think in the courtyard or somewhere around that castle, there is a sword in the stone, and you can go and try and pull it out. And I went and did that as a seven-year-old kid. I think I had my little Mickey Sorcerer's Apprentice hat with the ears on it, uh, and had a go at pulling it out. And there's always that moment as a kid where you're like, what if I do it? What if this is it? What What then? Sadly, I think it is literally half of a sword. There is no kind of blade to fully pull out of that stone. But there is a sword in the stone in Disneyland Paris because I tried as a kid to see if I could be the future king of, I don't know, Disneyland Paris or something. Oh my god, amazing. That'd be great. Partially correct because you can pull the sword from the stone. What? And, and I just couldn't? Sam, what does that yeah. say about me? This is you crushing. were not the chosen one. No. So once a day, or they used to do this, I don't don't think they do this anymore anywhere but there is a sword in the stone in pretty much every disney park once a day they have a ceremony where a guy comes out dressed as merlin and invites people to come along and have a go and typically they get a couple of like big burly men to come and try and pull the sword out and they can't do it and then he asks a little kid over and when they try they manage it and they pull the sword out of the stone and they are the king of disneyland for a day apparently or queen or queen yeah, because if we're looking into people who've you know pulled swords from lakes and stuff in recent years, it's been little girls pulling swords out of lakes and becoming 
quite did you see this there was a, a little girl I in I think, sweden who literally pulled an old sword out of a lake and it's now presumably the queen of sweden i, I don't know that's I amazing up. it's amazing uh, they also lost the sword in what in the stone in one of the parks in 2020 apparently it went missing for a little while yes yeah, someone must have pulled really really hard <laughs> <laughs> i definitely think someone could do it like what's that guy called hafthor bjornsson the mountain from game of thrones mm. he's like the strongest guy who's ever lived he could probably pull the sword from the stone in Disneyland or yeah. from the anvil, which is what it actually is. <laughs> so, yeah, the st- sword in the stone at Disneyland is normally next to the carousel. And that's because the original Disney carousel in California was called King Arthur's Carousel. And that is actually the oldest attraction at a Disneyland park because it was built in 1922 for a Canadian amusement park. And they shipped it over to Disneyland in 1954 for opening day. But this was long before they were going to adapt the Sword in the Stone. So it just happened to be, oh, we'll call it something fantastical. We'll call it King Arthur's Carousel. So there you go. Good knowledge. And that's pretty much it at the parks. So what about other extraneous Disney media then? There's there's no live-action remake of this yet. I don't think. Were there any straight-to-DVD sequels for this one? There were not, which is weird. It's one of the few. There's basically no real spin-offs of this whatsoever, although there's supposedly a remake in production, as we've mentioned. But the biggest lasting legacy... And it's not very big, but the biggest lesson legacy of this movie is in the world of comics because Madame Mim actually is the the biggest character from this legacy wise. Well, Merlin pops up when they need a wizard, like Merlin in the Kingdom Hearts games, as kind of a a mentor character in that. But Madame Mim is a huge star in Europe. She is specifically in the Netherlands. She is a massive character because in Europe, the Donald Duck comics are still going really, really strong in lots of European countries. And Madame Mim has been imported into the Donald Duckerverse, where she is one of the recurring villains in that comic book. And she's huge in the Netherlands. She's pretty big in Italy. I believe this is still true. Possibly, if we have any Dutch or Italian listeners that can tell me whether Madame Mim is still a big deal. There is a particular story arc in the Italian comic that I wanted to mention, which was a nine-issue runner, and it was called Merlin Presents Donald Duck and the 850. So in this story, it's quite relevant because it's based around the 1964 Tokyo Olympics. (laughs) Oh, God. Donald Duck has to deliver a special gas to power the torch, but Madame Mim wants the gas for herself for nefarious ends. So she's chasing Donald as he tries to deliver this special gas, and Donald's car breaks down. So Merlin intervenes by giving him a magical Fiat 850. The story is sponsored (laughs) by Fiat. (laughs) Makes sense. And this this ran for nine issues. How did they get nine issues worth out of that story? Don't know. Possibly there was backup features, but yes, um, Donald and the magic Fiat 850. So Madame Mim, big character in certain places, as well as in the world of online fan art. Now, one other thing I did want to talk about, just because there's not much for Son the Stone, I thought this would be the time to finally mention Once Upon a Time, the ABC Um. drama which ran from 2011 to 2018, which we get a fair number of tweets about, because like Kingdom Hearts, this is something that A, is very long and complicated, too long and complicated to explain on a podcast, and B, features pretty much a character from every Disney movie ever, and if I mentioned Once Upon a Time, every time it was relevant, it would have been in every episode. Yeah. This is a show where all of the fairy tale characters have been cursed to live as humans in a modern day town in Maine called Storybrooke. And one reason I haven't watched this, something that really annoys me about this show that I haven't seen, is that it's not 
Disney specific. It's made by Disney, and there are lots of Disney specific characters in this. So, like, Elsa is in this at one point, who is basically an original Disney character loosely based on the Snow Queen fairy tale. But there are characters in this who have never been in a Disney anything. So, mm-hmm. Rumpelstiltskin is one of the main characters, not a Disney character. That annoys me. Pick a lane. Are you doing all fairy tales or are you doing all Disney movies? They're doing, this is mm, both. Yeah, that's true. They're doing mostly fairy tales in the early seasons. And then they realized that the, how the Disney thing was... Yeah, so like Elsa came in very late on. I've seen maybe two of her episodes. Whereas they started with more of a loose, less Disney-fied portrayal of these characters so like in terms of like costume and stuff even when they transformed into their fairy tale versions so you saw flashbacks endless flashbacks to their fairy tale versions they weren't necessarily in the disney costumes but then they they became more disney i think as they went and you started to get you know captain hook who's a total dreamboat in this scenario and um so was the mad hatter sebastian stan as i remember was the mad hatter wow we've had tweets about that we've had tweets i would would bet you had yeah (laughs) i'm surprised clarice didn't bring it up to be perfectly honest Um, so have you seen a lot of it i've seen a couple of seasons i haven't seen i'm not in any way up to date she haven't seen season five which is the king arthur season no oh that would have been super relevant for this wow yeah okay. so he is the villain in season five of no. this yeah he's, a, he's obviously the adult king arthur yeah is a baddie mm. and he has look we've elided a lot between how this show begins and where it ends up by season five but safe to say he's being hunted by mulan and merida from brave because he killed merida's dad <laughs> Wow, okay. Okay, that's a thing. I mean, I, I you know, the, the show probably generally has a slight suspicion of hereditary monarchy that is unusual in Disney, uh, which tends to be pretty monarchist in, you know, stories at least. But uh, making King Arthur a full-on villain, I'm not sure I approve. Yeah. As soon as he said that, Sam, I felt Helen checking out of, <laughs> of Once Upon it's a like, Time no, Season 5. No, skipping that season. Rumpelstiltskin, though, is a great character because so, of Robert Carlyle. Like, you don't hire him and give him nothing to do. So he's good, but, um, but it is a very confused and um, messy, messy world. So just to wrap up Arthur's story, he's eventually killed by Hades. And he has to, he goes to the underworld where he has to team up with Captain Hook to escape. And in the end, he has to defeat the new ruler of the underworld, Cruella de Vil. What? <laughs> and he, he rules the underworld for the very specific period of 50 years. I don't know what happens after that. And this sounds like I've just made it up. It sounds like, like the latest series of this show are just mad Disney fan fiction mad libs, exactly. Yeah. Um, so there you go. That's what happens to King Arthur in Once Upon a Time. Wow. Wow. And I'm never going to talk about that show again unless I come across something <laughs> oh, particularly yeah, be, crazy. Yeah, there'll be something particularly... It is all pretty crazy. But that's it. I've said it now and don't ask me to talk about it anymore because I am never going to watch it. <laughs> and that is it for this week's class. Helen, thank you so much for joining us. It's been really, really fun having you on the podcast at last. I've been waiting a long time for this. Uh, have you had fun in, in the Very uh, much. halls of learning that is Disneyversity? Yes, sorry for the ranty bits, everyone. But it was necessary, damn it. <laughs> Look, you're standing up for the good uh, legacy of King Arthur and not so good <laughs> 
Utrecht, whatever he was called. Uther. Uther, that's Uther. It. Utrecht. Utrecht. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to talk about the Treaty of Utrecht, we can also do that, but no, yeah. Maybe in another podcast, maybe in a bonus episode. But Helen, where can people find you online and find your things and find your book, Women vs. Hollywood, on sale now? Yes, it is. Um, so it's Women vs. Hollywood, The Fall and Rise of Women in Film, and it is out now in the UK and places and uh coming out in november in the u.s um unless i think i think the audiobook might already be out there anyway but november basically and yes i'm on twitter helen l o'hara and of course i'm on the empire podcast often with you ben uh, every week so please come and join us there for more film related fun yes and join us again for our next seminar as we reach the final film in the bangers era with mowgli's man cub adventures (gasps) in the jungle book In the meantime, if you've enjoyed this podcast, please do subscribe wherever you get your pods. And if you fancy dropping us a little review, we'll send you off on an all-expenses-paid trip to Bermuda, courtesy of our good pal Merlin. But for now, it's goodbye from Sam. See you later. It's goodbye from Helen. Toodaloo. And it's goodbye from me. Thanks so much for listening. Diversity is brought to you by Ben Travis and Sam Summers. Our artwork is by Ollie Gibbs and our music is by Nefetz. Follow us at Disneyversity on Twitter and Instagram and catch you for next week's class. Music